Hello there, everybody. Welcome to the Dharma Toolkit Daily with me, Chandra Dasa. It's a delight to welcome you back and to welcome some lovely guests who we'll meet in a little second. We hope wherever you are that you're doing well, that you're feeling okay in the midst of all the ongoing uncertainty and that you're somewhere in touch with your practice. What does that feel like? What does that look like? We've been exploring it together for several weeks now. Wherever you are, I'm sure that's beginning to emerge for you. Emergence has been one of the themes this week in our podcast as we've explored different notions of global community, global sangha, all enabled by the internet. And I'm delighted to say today we have two guests who I think exemplify that in very different ways, both of them from the opposite hemisphere from me. I'm on a Tuesday evening in the United States on the East Coast here in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And I've got two good friends who are coming from New Zealand and Australia who have a very special relationship of their own that we might hear about. So first of all, I'd like to welcome from Sydney, Australia, at the ungodly time of six in the morning, in the future, Bodhidasa. Good morning, good evening, good night, oh, good heavens. Uh, hello. <laughs> hello, Chandra Dasa. Thank you for inviting me. This is quite an honour. I'm very happy that you decided to do it, particularly since it does require the superhuman feat of having your first cup of coffee before one has any right to have your first cup of coffee. I'm afraid I'm a coffee person and I'm not an early morning meditator either. It's slow in the mornings, but I hope I can share something of interest. What's your lockdown situation? It's been fascinating to hear all these different people in different places with their stories of what it's like where you are. So I've been living in lockdown a lot longer than some other people, I think, in some ways. I teach at a Buddhist school. It's the only Buddhist primary school and high school in Australia. And it's not connected with our particular movement. But we went into teaching online about two weeks earlier than many other places started doing so. And I've been really surprised by generally how easy it's been adapting to living inside. And have you felt a sense of your own practice holding up in the face of all the uncertainty? I feel it's become much stronger, which I did not expect. After initially a period of adjustment, I found myself meditating a lot more, being able to meditate, say, during my lunch breaks. And I found it really useful going for sort of afternoon walks, very mindfully going on afternoon walks and finding so many different things in the area that I hadn't seen before. So I find myself a little bit more curious than I used to be about my own area. Yeah, it's been very interesting hearing lots of different guests talking about their relationship to nature shifting, you know, the single walk a day thing that you're allowed. We had one other guest from New Zealand who was talking about walking up a volcano every day for her single walk. The place of that in, in life seemingly becoming much more poignant in a certain way. And zipping across the sea to Auckland, New Zealand, and a couple of hours ahead of Sydney, I'd like to welcome my very good friend Ratna Viewer, who I've known for absolutely yonks. In fact, one feels quite old reflecting on how long we've known each other. He's originally from America. He's now a firm resident of Auckland, New Zealand. Welcome. Good morning. Right of you. Yeah, thanks, Chandra Dasa. It's great to see you. I'm not sure how long a yonk is. Is a yonk kind of a long period of time? <laughs> a yonk is slightly longer than an age, but less than an eon. Excellent. Yeah, it does feel like a long time. Yeah, it's been great. It's been great knowing you. It's been a great friendship. I still remember when we first met in Cambridge and I remember making the decision to develop a friendship. I remember you gave me the choice. I could either meet you once a week and we had the potential to form more of a friendship or we didn't have to. We could just meet like we were, which was kind of irregularly. And I remember taking you up on that offer and I remember it developing into a great friendship. 
So I have a lot of appreciation. For some reason, when when I remember that, I have a strong memory of sitting eating a lot of jam-filled donuts in the old city, beautiful city centre in Cambridge amongst the colleges, the famous colleges, and just sort of revelling in, in cobblestones and spires and Englishness of a kind that's almost idyllic. Yeah, I think the thing I remember is going out for lunch a lot and going and eating vegan ice cream at the health food shop and stuff like that. There was definitely a contrast between my Protestant conditioning, which was to go home and make a sandwich with food I'd already bought and a different conditioning you brought, which was to enjoy yourself and to enjoy the fruits of life. It was very good for me. What sort of lockdown conditions do you have in Auckland? I know you're a busy boy at the Buddha Center, but what's the broader scope of your life like? It's been quite a change shifting all the center activities online. And for the first couple of weeks, we were working really hard to try and develop a program that worked for us and that we thought would work for other people. Now that we have that, it's great. You can sit back a little bit and work more on the quality of it and the depth of it. You're less struggling with the technology and the timing and the technical details. So that's been great. Being in lockdown is interesting just because it's so quiet here. And in New Zealand, I actually feel we're quite lucky. I think last night we had nine deaths total. So the virus has been contained. The lockdown happened quick and early and strongly. And with any hope, we'll be out of it within a week or so. But I'm just now adjusting to what life might be like, like this. And I have to say, it's been a struggle. You know, I felt quite flat over the weekend and I don't always know how to find my inspiration during the day. I'm just working on it. Mm, Yeah, that balance of trying to work with your own flatness, as you call it, and also be on for people, be the face in a way of a positive community-based response to something. It's quite a balance, isn't it? To hold both equitably and give them both the kind of attention they need. I think it is. And one of the other things I think that's been so interesting as we've explored this is that different people use this medium more regularly. So say, for example, we've got a two o'clock in the afternoon gathering, and there's been a, a gentleman who had come to the center only a little bit, but he's older and he's come regularly every day. And it's been really lovely developing a friendship with him, just getting to know him a bit better. Fascinating guy from New York who's been living in New Zealand for 20 years, shooting commercials his whole life. He was a photographer. And it's just been lovely hearing his stories and hearing him share about his family too. He's concerned about his family, still lives in America. He's concerned about his son in Sydney who's out of work, but has adjusted and has now moved into the streaming business somehow. I don't know completely how that has happened. So you've got to maintain, I guess, that leadership for the community while at the same time you're adjusting to new things. It's exciting too. People are excited about it, I think. Yeah, one of the themes that's been coming up consistently throughout the podcast, we've spoken it a few times in the last episodes, has been to do with maintaining imaginative connection with a broader community. Just the importance, actually the importance for everyday practice, whether it's online or not, in maintaining imaginative connection. And people starting to talk about how that is in a way made more manifest by the fact that everything is in front of you on a screen. And although it's still two-dimensional in a certain way, there is a kind of stronger visual reminder 
that you're in relationship with people, that you're inextricably in relationship. It's not something that's negotiable if you're part of a community, particularly a sort of community of purpose like ours. I was wondering if either of you had thoughts about what's emerging, the sort of emergent nature of this. This came up in our great conversation with Kamala Sheila, talking about the excitement at the idea of emergent communities, the difference in a community from leading things online. You're a teacher, Bodhidasa. Have you noticed the kids having a different response to the context? One of the things that fascinates me with regard to the technology is how courageous it makes people. So recently at my school, we had our seniors delivering TED Talks. They went through the whole process of selecting their own topic. And I was quite nervous about them getting up in front of an audience live and being able to speak. And then we went into lockdown. And each of the students had to deliver their TED Talks via technology. And a number of our students are really shy, really, really shy. Every single one was spectacular. In fact, some of them did not expect. And tears, you know, some of us were crying. They were so powerful. And I'm finding similarly when I engage in Buddhist activities on Zoom, whether it's a conversation or even a devotional practice, like a chanting session or what we might call puja, I find people are just really willing to contribute. They're really willing to talk to you and not out of desperation. I think people just really love the opportunity to speak openly and courageously. And I've really enjoyed that. I really enjoy that. Do you know, it never occurred to me before that I guess just hearing you talk about kids, particularly just having that newfound burst of confidence in a way that somehow comes out, comes alive on the medium. I suppose for a lot of younger people at the moment, they are digital natives in a way that we are not. And a lot of their intake of educational material, inspirational material is through broadcast and performance and that kind of stuff. In some ways, maybe it's easier socially to be in that context. Yeah, absolutely. When you don't have a whole bunch of eyes actually in the same room looking at you, it changes your dynamic. I think it changes just how far you're willing to go. And what I found is that the students in particular just don't feel they're in the headlights. They don't feel they're in the spotlight. They feel they're in their bedroom because they actually are in their bedroom. They're in a context. They're in a situation where they feel more relaxed and I suppose more in control of themselves. And so I think that's a benefit in this situation is that you can be in a context where you can be more at ease, you can be more relaxed and hopefully more yourself. Right, Nabi, I suppose I'm interested in this from the other side as well, which is Maybe you're doing more stuff online than you normally would in terms of being in a position as a teacher or as a facilitator. How has that been for you, the kind of adjustment to that? And how have you found the audience, as it were, like the way they respond? Has it been less inhibited and less self-conscious? Yeah, I think it is less inhibited and less self-conscious. I haven't actually had to do as much, to be honest, teaching. It's been interesting. Our Sangha night, our team's been great. Our team's really stepped up over this period of time. Yeah, there's been newfound leaders that have come forward, which you know I'm all in favor of. So that's been great. And I spend a lot of time on phone conversations anyways and online. So it feels quite natural in a way, you know, because a lot of our classes are conversations like this. They're just unfolding conversations. And so it's been nice. That aspect of it is something unfolding. It still feels like we're just in the earliest possible days of what is unfolding, the kind of emergence thing again. I'm curious as to what opportunity presents with being in this paradigm of something that's going to unfold and we're going to be the people who unfold it, who take part at least in the unfolding. That's what interests me too, is the uncertainty. 
of going future and the opportunity for radical change. You know, you're at a crossroads. The new technology, one of the things it does for me is it shows me that it's not as hard to do things differently as I thought it was and that it can be more successful than I feared, you know, that it might not be successful. So I do think it's an interesting opportunity for change. And I think it's an opportunity for people to speak out because there's a lot of forces going to come into play. My sister's very interested in civil liberties, for example, right now, and the question of civil liberties and, and how they've been stripped back and how a government can just all of a sudden order millions of people around the planet to stay at home. And what does that do for democracy and freedom of religion and freedom to gather and stuff like that? Yeah, obviously, I know you and your family a little bit. And it feels like quite a different paradigm, say, somewhere like New Zealand, where you've got a seemingly quite positive and sane government in position at the moment. And then coming from the US, where there's just a lot of chaos politically around all this, and those issues are very much alive, and the different, sometimes surprising playoffs of almost anarchic process around those big questions. You were talking about opportunities with it. I suppose trying to make that a little more specific, what's on your mind, particularly at the moment, when it comes to the opportunity? Like, where do you see the sort of fruitful avenue be for a Buddhist community for the kind of work that you do day to day? I guess one of the opportunities is just the opportunities that present themselves on a day-to-day basis. You know, when this lockdown first started, people were making runs on the grocery shelves, for example. You know, I've never seen the grocery empty. It was just an experience to just walk in the grocery store and just see empty shelves. I just thought, wow, this is amazing. And I could have been fearful. My response could have been fearful. My response could have been anger at the people who were buying up all the stuff. But, you know, there's an opportunity to respond differently to those people who are in fear, who are afraid and who don't understand what's going on and they're uncertain. And I think that's the main opportunity is how do we respond now with presence and compassion and care to one another? Yeah, that's the main opportunity, I think. One of the things that struck me when all this started to take on, and I started venturing out myself and into, you know, shops like Retina Viewer said, is that it's just so easy to slide into fear. It's just so easy when you see things happening around you. I remember going into a store and I saw an elderly man with a face mask, quite literally opening a backpack and grabbing his arm and scooping an entire shelf of tuna cans into his backpack. And I remember seeing that and feeling a combination of panic and a sadness for him at the same time. And I think what Renaviewer highlighted there is we have such an opportunity on an internal level, on a micro level, to see pain, to see fear, and to come up with a far more creative response. I remember sort of sucking in my sort of fear response to this man. And I had to really change the way that I was thinking, change the way that I was going to then interact. Because I could see myself racing over to the paper towel or racing over to the pasta shells and almost doing something exactly the same. Because it's so it's so easy to fear. It's actually much, much harder to stand your ground and be patient and to be looking on people more kindly in these situations rather than say leaping to conclusions like, oh, what an idiot or, you know, that's completely unnecessary. And those kind of judging thoughts, you can really challenge those in these moments. 
One thing that's been on my mind with it is, you know, the sort of day-to-day observation of our species that's going on at the moment in these almost laboratory conditions. It's reminded me a lot of watching hours and hours and hours of David Attenborough. You know, where it's like there's a camera that stays with a species for a whole year and you get to see the subtleties of group dynamics and all that stuff. Just at that animal level, you can see the animal level of human beings as flocking animals or tribal animals or whatever it is that goes on. I think one of the attractive things about being in a community is the stories that you're exposed to and that are not just the stories you know. And stories, in a way, is one of the things that can help sort of raise it above just that level of instinctual behaviour. I was wondering if there's anything to say about story in this. I know when we signed up at U2 for the podcast, Ranavia, you wrote something super intriguing on the spreadsheet, which was the Shambhala prophecy. And I confess, when I saw it, I was kind of like, whoa, what does he want to talk about in this? And then I was thinking, I bet he's got a story. There's a story in there. What are the stories that you think capture the response to fear, the seizing of the day with the opportunity? Yeah, the Shambhala prophecy is just that. It's a story. But it's a story that really brought tears to my eyes when I first heard it, because it's like a military story. It's a warrior story. It's a story of bravery. And it's a story of bravery, which isn't about being aggressive. It's a story about bravery in terms of standing up for what you value. And it's a story of bravery in terms of patience and tolerance and the courage to face difficult situations and stand together. And that story just really moved me because it was a story of beauty also a story of what could be and what isn't. I was reading someone, it seems like a lot of people have the same response to that story. Joanna Macy's talked about it before. Chagyam Trump has written a book on it, although he's kind of extended it into his own thing. And I do think that Sangharachita, our own founder, had that vision in mind of a community, you know, a community of people working together towards a more beautiful place. Shambhala is just a word denoting a mythical place that is a paradise. In Buddhism, we also talk about pure lands, a pure land being a place of practice where people do live in community and live together and practice the Dharma together. And because of the practicing together, something else arises harmoniously amongst the community, which is special. And we kind of all know that feeling. We know when we're working in a team or with a group of friends and something special arises, we can feel it in the atmosphere. And it's not the result of something one person brought, but it's the result of the dynamic that's resulted from all the people together. And it's a dynamic of love, respect, inquiry, courage, clarity, a whole host of qualities which create beautiful community. It's an inspiring notion, isn't it, that somehow the conditions we're in make all of that a little neater, or it swims into view a little sharper, a little clearer. One of the things that Vajragupta was saying in our home retreat was that he was aware of how easy it is for people to forget. He was talking about hearing people looking forward to some of this, the world never going back, never changing. How do you balance up the hope of that sort of story and that sort of context of community that feels a little more within reach at the moment when things are changing and emerging? How do you balance that up with just the kind of human tendency to fall back, go back to what you already know, to pick fleas off each other under the tree? (laughs) It was David Attenborough narrating. So you're reminding me of something from my childhood. In the 1980s, we had a comedy show on television, which did exactly what you said earlier about David Attenborough. It had a a man wearing a beige safari suit walking into offices or walking into bowling alleys and... uh, narrating as if he were an actual David Attenborough type and he was defining the behaviours of the various people around him. 
So my mind's playing on that at the moment. I think we're always at a point of shift. I think we're always at this kind of fulcrum point where we can tip into our base nature or we can tip into something more inspiring. I think it's always present. But in moments of crisis, whether it's what we're experiencing now, or even if it's in, say, the tragic death of a loved one, or in those great moments of crisis, of suffering, if we have the ability to attend carefully, if we have the ability to discern what's going on, and we have these stories in place, if we have the stories, whether it's you know, Shambhala or Shangri-La or Avalon or whatever, if we have those stories in place, they can give a sense of inspiration, a sense of trajectory, and we can draw on those stories, draw on aspects of those stories to help us in these moments of crisis. When we're living a life of comfort and ease and Netflix, it's very challenging for us to connect with these deeper stories. I think we really do need points of crisis. I think we really do need them. We need that difficulty and that pain to work from, to reach out and connect more deeply to those stories. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Bodhidasa, because it's the difference between forgetting about something that's bad that's happened and just resetting after death and uncertainty, so to speak, and going back to the normal versus being drawn by something beautiful. And I think some people need to be drawn by something beautiful. I think that remembering the difficulties that have happened, like say, for example, the Holocaust Museum is a remembrance of something difficult that's happened. It's, you know, lest we forget, you know, World War II. But some of these stories, they offer us a vision of what could be. And I think sometimes beauty is an important thing to draw us forward. In these stories, if we be more specific about the Shambhala story, or any of these kind of stories, even like the Avalon myth, which is a, almost a direct parallel, the person who wants to get to these places. So Shambhala, for example, is meant to be a hidden kingdom somewhere in the Himalayas where there is a perfect king and there is perfect health and wealth is shared and you know the weather's wonderful and I'm sure if there were espresso, it would be just the right temperature and just the right strength. Everything is marvellous there, but it's bloody hard to get there. To get there, you have to struggle. It is hard to find. You have to ascend the mountain and it's not like you're on an escalator. There is that sense of you have to work hard to get somewhere. And I think that's highlighting the fact that we do need to be in struggle. That is the point. That is the crux. That's the tipping point that leads to something that's much brighter and much healthier. But we have to set foot on that. We have to walk it's not just the kind of we are Sparta kind of whacking the sword on the shield and the rock hard abs. You know, it's not that kind of heroism. I've got heroism two doors up from me at the moment where a food bank has appeared on the front of their house. Someone's made a food bank two doors up the road. And did they have to? No. But they wanted to give to people because you know, that's what a hero does. They're not just doing it for their own vainglorious desires. They're doing it because they're giving back. I think with Shambhala and such similar stories and myths about not just leading yourself, but you're also trying to take others with you. And I think that's what the Dharma does for us too, is that it's not just me getting my sense of community or my sense of connection or my sense of security. It's realizing that every small act that you're engaging in is one step closer for yourself and for your community towards that state of whatever Shambhala or Avalon is. Yeah, that's really important to think about what the myth of the hero is, because I think we tend to think of hero as the single fighter, 
But I don't know. I think of the hero as a builder of community. I think of the hero as someone who doesn't get in their own way and helps a situation come together. You know, when you see war movies and you see officers, it's interesting. I've just been editing some audio from my dad on his reflections on Vietnam. And he had a real dislike of officers, but he didn't have a dislike of officers who were with the men. He had a dislike of officers who sat above the men and who kind of put themselves separate from the men and were willing to sacrifice the men without consideration. I don't think that's a hero. You know, I don't think that's even admirable, really. But the hero is affiliated with bravery and with knowing yourself and being able to come forward. It's interesting in Buddhism, one of the Brahma Viharas, which are the different manifestations of kindness, of loving kindness, they include compassion, they include equanimity, they include an appreciative awareness, and includes loving kindness. So one of them is mudita. And mudita is interesting because mudita is that appreciation of others. And it's said to bring people together. When you rejoice in the merits of others, when you see their good qualities, you can move from being overwhelmed by a situation, in despair, not knowing where to go. You can see the qualities of the people around you. And by seeing and rejoicing in the qualities of the people around you, there is a sense of potential and a sense of being allied with others. I love that both of you have brought back the sense of the heroic in the story to something fundamentally relational, which might not be a lot of people's first instinct is to think of the relational as itself potentially heroic. That's a courageous heroic act for human beings to stand on at times like this and to think about the future being built on the practice of relationship, the practice of community. The template for me in many ways when I think about how I can work in the world is what's called the hero's journey or the mythic journey that Joseph Campbell, the mythologist, talks about. Uh, when I actually think about this, this was the beginning of my own spiritual awakening, if you will, awakening with a small a. When I first encountered this at 15, this idea that all people who have heroic intent follow a similar kind of track, and that is that they have some kind of crisis or change that leads them out of the world in which they find themselves. And they are driven by something that is of deep value to them. And they go into the world and they gain insight or wisdom or skill or treasure of some kind. And they come back to share that with their own community and create change. Now, it's very noble and lofty. And there's, you know, a bazillion films and books that cover this, but it is actually a template for living. And so, you know, what does that mean for me? Uh, what does it mean for our communities to be heroic? So firstly, you have to be aware, I think, of the crisis you're in or the discomfort or be aware of the change. Don't try and hide from it. And you need to be active. You need to be part of the world to whatever extent you can be. And for many of us, we're being part of the world through screens. This is us going beyond, going outside of our comfort zones for many people. The treasure we're gaining is, I think, how close we all are we're really incredibly close. We're not so divided. We have an opportunity to reach out to people and to listen to their stories and listen to the experiences they have and develop a sense of empathy. Gosh, the world needs more empathy. Bring that back into our communities and share that. Bring that back with a sense of humility, but without losing that deeper value that sets you off on the journey in the first place. It's interesting, isn't it, what gets encapsulated in these almost core stories or core 
templates, as you called it, for stories. I'm sort of aware that with that language, it can sound quite abstract in a certain way. And I'm aware, particularly living in America, of the sort of glib Fox News denigration of blood and treasure, etc., that people often trade when they're talking about war and a certain kind of macho martial attitude to heroism and all that kind of stuff, which is clearly not what we're talking about here. Since this all came out of emergence and the sort of open-ended unfolding that's clearly going on as one aspect of the coronavirus shutdown across the world, do you see shoots of this appearing in your communities, in the societies that you're taking part in? Is it limited to your Buddhist context? Is it something that you can see seems to have a broader reach? I think with this, what Bodhidasa was just saying made me think about fearlessness. And then I was thinking, well, how do you manifest fearlessness? And Chandra Dasa, you were speaking earlier about the heroic ideal, you know, drawing out the relational dimension. I spoke earlier about the fear of civil liberties, that civil liberties get stripped back. But also I've heard people talk about how they want their children to play with other children. I've heard people talk about missing contact with others, like somebody in a grocery store actually reaching out to a stranger and giving her a hug. And I think maybe perhaps some of the fearlessness and some of the heroism here that this next period of time calls for is to not fall prey to the terror of an invisible enemy and to stay in relationship with one another, to feel comfortable enough to reach out, to shake hands. You know, some people are saying shaking hands might disappear. Well, what a shame. You know, wouldn't it be a shame if hugging disappeared? Wouldn't it be a shame if that more intimate, actually, it would be better if people were closer together. I'm kind of reminded of the author of Sapiens, Harari. I was really struck by him talking about, you know, what are the most successful organisms on the planet? What are the most successful animals? And he said, well, one of the most successful animals from a Darwinian reproduction of the species perspective is the domesticated chicken. And, you know, there's millions and millions and millions of domesticated chickens. Do we want to be a domesticated chicken or would we rather be a dinosaur on the brink of extinction that's running free? And I think that's an interesting reflection. I like how you move from the kindness of the supermarket to the dinosaurs running free on the edge of extinction as the comet approaches. Because it's interesting, people do need both, don't they? They need the grand stories and the big stories. And well, in a way, some of the content of Netflix, etc., the stories that literally take you out of yourself and make you less afraid of the other. The other is the kind of scary thing. And you also need the everyday heroism of food banks and people choosing that sort of super grounded, very relational, everyday heroism and bravery with each other. You really do need to do acts around you. One of the things I've found fascinating that I'm doing, I surprise myself because I can be a bit of a misanthrope and I'm walking the streets in the afternoons doing a constitutional and I find myself looking into people's faces, which is something I would never do, particularly in certain parts of where I live. To look in someone's face is either seen as a kind of judgment or as a kind of provocation. And what I find in people's faces, I wish I could show you the expression. There's a kind of an eye roll, but it's a lightly humorous kind of, here we are. Uh, yep, hello, meter and a half away. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful point of empathy. These two people who would never meet and would avoid each other's gaze in a street are now meeting in the socially distanced and socially awkward moment. And in that, there's a moment of levity and there's a shared experience. I think there's, there's a kind of courage in that. There's a relational courage in that. Hello, I'm in the same situation as you. You're in the same situation as me. Let's part with a sense of baseline goodwill. 
I like the fact that ironic empathy, you could build something actually quite profound out of that if you if you let yourself. Yeah, I think there's a lot of bravery in there because in some ways they're truly meeting. You're meeting somebody. You know, you're in a shared context and you're saying, yes, we're in a shared context. And you know that when you look at them. And I think that's true bravery to be yourself in the presence of another is fearless. It's very difficult. Yeah, it reminds me of some of the conversation we had with Vivica from San Francisco and Upayadi from New York City about communities at the margins of society, communities exposed to all sorts of systemic prejudice, etc. How for years they've been dealing with certain kinds of pressures, social pressures, etc. that now most people are having to experience for the first time in a particular way, dealing with lack, the empty supermarket, etc., and they've been building up a resource of human wisdom about how to respond. How can the animal adapt, as it were? Yeah, it seems that those little kind of quiet, intimate human pockets of bravery, they actually do have a chance to come out don't they? and be seen in a different way in the current context. I'm reminded of someone I know, a friend I have in Adelaide, whose partner goes out for her weekly shop or her daily shop in the afternoon. But she does so on roller skates dressed as a butterfly. And that's courageous, particularly with the leggings. And what she does is she goes to the shops with her bag on her roller skates with her big fairy wings, and she spreads joy rather than you know scurrying and keeping 1.5 metres apart. She roller skates and dances her way to the shops, keeping the requisite distance, and then goes home again. And you think, well, you know, that's that's a kind of... <laughs> bodhisattva act, if you like, a being that wants other people to grow beyond themselves. I wish I had the courage, but I don't have the roller skates. Or the leggings. Mm, not so sure about that. <laughs> Earlier, Brad Viewer said that you and he, the decision was made that we can meet on a regular basis and then we can develop a friendship like that. Well, that lineage was passed on to me with Ratnaviewer when I was in a particular difficult time of my life prior to being ordained a member of our order, Radnaviewer reached out to me and pretty much said something similar. Let's meet. Let's meet on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, we'll do this regularly and let's see what happens. It's been an extremely rewarding experience for me to really feel that someone's got my back. Yeah, it's been a really rewarding experience for me too, but I was going to tell a slightly different story. I was going to tell the story of probably one of those Tuesdays, may have been another day, but one of those Tuesdays where I came over and Bodhi Dasa and I got into a sort of fight and he told me to leave and to never come back again. And I remember just thinking, okay, I'll just go. And I didn't take it personally. I just thought, well, he just needs some time to, to decompress, needs you know some time. And we came back. And I think that is an example of the bravery that we're kind of talking about. I've always appreciated with Bodhidasa that he's let me be myself and I've tried to let him be himself. And at the same time, we both challenge each other to be better than our limited selves, to be clear, to be kinder to ourselves and others. And it's that journey that's been so beautiful and rewarding. And I think that's the journey of true friendship. I don't recall that. <laughs> I don't recall that time where I asked you to get out of my house. I do recall a time when I was slumped in the corridor, the main corridor of my house, sobbing in tears on the phone to you. And I just felt that no one understood. No one, no one cared. You know, oh, woe is me. Oh, you know, the small little violins are playing and sobbing like a wreck. 
And you were just completely holding that and weren't telling me to get over myself, weren't telling me to, you know, pull it together, weren't telling me to be kind or giving me any lectures. You just gave me this incredible space for me to just deal with that myself before you gave me some incredibly sterling advice, which I still live by to this day, which I'm not going to tell you because it's a bit personal. And I just haven't experienced that. I certainly haven't experienced that with a parent. Yeah. So I'm very grateful that you've been a constant sort of witness and a challenger and a guide without ever feeling judged or taught, you know, very much a friend who wants to see me and everyone else that you associate with, actually, when I've seen you with other people, you just want people to be the best them that they can be, the most wise or the most aware person they can be. I think that my experience of myself is that I am better in collaboration with others. It's really interesting. That's been a discovery over the past 20 years for me is that my strengths shine when they're complemented by other people's strengths and that people draw out of me my blessings. So it's a really interesting realization to realize that you're stronger in community than you are alone, like really deeply stronger and more resilient. I've really enjoyed that about our friendship, Buddy Dasa, because I think I've learned a lot from you. And I've learned a lot from Chandra Dasa too, like to appreciate poetry, for example. I never appreciated poetry before I started hanging out with Chandra Dasa. But I've really grown to be different. You've allowed me to accept more of the maybe mythical side of myself and to allow that to grow and to allow it to be and to allow it to have legs, I guess, in my life which I'm really thankful for because at one time that was shut down a bit more. You know, it was alive when I was a child and then it died through my education and then it came back alive again. So I've really benefited from our friendship. Oh, that was all very nice. Goodness. (laughs) It's very beautiful to hear this kind of very intimate, personal side of courage and heroism that just everybody knows from doing relationship, right? Relationship does require courage. It does require vulnerability and exposure and all that stuff. And then that just opening it into something communal and collaborative. In a way, you're better with others than you're not. Maybe that's one of the qualities of emergent society anyway, is just this dawning realization that you're better together, as it were, than you are isolated self from other all the time. I'd very much like to thank our two heroic, courageous guests for getting up at the crack of dawn to talk to us from the other side of the world, at least from my perspective. I'm on the other side of the world from theirs. The glorious Doctor Who loving, we didn't even get to talk about that, Bodhidasa. <laughs> no, we didn't get to talk about that. <laughs> now there's podcasts. a mythic character. <laughs> the myth of Doctor Who and the Dharma. Thank you for crossing space and time to talk to us today, Bodhidasa. It's a real delight. And thank you for the constant challenge to challenge to keep things real. That's really important for all of us at this time. Thank you for that. And thanks to to your friend, the person who gave you your name, who brought you into Buddhist order, but most of all, who kind of just holds a lot of people in love, in heart, in mind, right in the view. Thanks, Chandra Dasa. I've really appreciated this little chat of ours, even if it was in the morning. Morning's fine. Yeah, and thanks for all that you're doing at the Buddhist Center Online, which is phenomenal. So you're stretching time and space yourself. And it's really important for us to reach out, I think, particularly as a community right now, to reach out to other people and particularly with a message of hope. 
to be honest, a message of hope that there are ways that we can come out of this better than how we went in. Because periods of crisis like this can always strip away what's unimportant and remind us what's most important. And then going forward, we can prioritize those things. Indeed. Thank you very much. And in a way, whether you're listening to this this week, next week, soon after it was recorded, or whether you happen to be listening to it five years hence, 10 years hence, if the internet still exists and we're still on it, the encouragement would be just to look around you for ways to do community. It's not something that happens to you. It's something that you take part in, something that you co-create with others. And that's really what this podcast is about. So we hope you'll stay connected to us, to your sense of community online over the next weeks and months. You can find all sorts of voices, stories, all sorts of quiet acts of heroism at thebuddhistcenter.com slash toolkit on the podcast, sitting quietly in the morning in meditation deeply heroic thing to do in the face of existential angst, the unknown, the great unknown. And we'll be back with you throughout the weeks, throughout the months ahead. Connect in whatever way you can. Stay safe, be well, and we look forward to seeing you online soon. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.